Today on the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast, we continue with Pastor Frank's series, Live Free, a Study of Galatians, with his message titled, The Law Leads Us to Freedom. After this episode, we will be all caught up on the series, and you can expect to see new episodes each Tuesday following the Sunday messages here at Grace Life Fellowship. We hope you're enjoying the series. Here's Pastor Frank. I'm so glad you're here today to continue our study of what may be the most important book in the New Testament. If you've been with us, you know that Galatians functions for the believer much like the Declaration of Independence that we so cherish as Americans. Galatians has been called the Christian's Emancipation Proclamation. It declares to us that through the finished work of Jesus, did you hear those words? Finished? That we have been once and for all set free from the law and the economy of achieving and placed instead into the grace of God and an economy of receiving all that God is to all that we need in the moment of faith. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) We have seen in our study thus far that though our freedom has been won, it must continually be fought for and protected. There are those out there. And in Acts chapter 20, it says there are those in here that stand ready to put us back under the law of Moses and put us back into performing in order to either merit salvation or maintain sanctification before God. Now, I did a lot of reading and there's a lot of people out there that say it's ignorance on their part and it may well be. But the more I ponder this book, I'm not so sure that arrogance is not the bigger issue. Think about this. God himself says, it is finished. For man to come along and say, oh no, it's not. There is more to do. And we will do that more. We will add to what Jesus has done. That sounds a little arrogant. My friends, it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul literally screamed in that first chapter that that message was another gospel that isn't really a gospel. And yet, sadly, the Galatians were buying into it. They were turning their eyes back to the law, and in doing so, they were reversing the gospel, turning 180 degrees away from Jesus Fortunately, they had a friend named the Apostle Paul, a friend who will strap on the gloves and fight for them, and he's going to fight hard. He told them, you got charmed, Galatians. False teachers provided you with a message that made you feel good. After all, think about this. Man has been doing ever since the fall. Ever since the fall, man attempts to achieve for himself, to merit for himself. And for them to come along and say, you know, you need to do, man, that feels right. To hear the message of the gospel, you need to stop doing and start receiving is foreign to man. It feels awkward we got to remember that that economy, though, that economy of grace, that economy of receiving came from God himself. 
It came from heaven, not from earth. So, of course, it's going to feel weird for earth dwellers. He called them foolish Galatians. Foolish is not a very good translation. The word is anoetos, and it means non-thinking. Their problem was not that they were mentally handicapped, but that they were being careless. They were being spiritually lazy. They were not using their mind. When Paul tells them they were foolish Galatians, what he's really saying is think. Think. I love the way Malcolm Smith puts it in that inimitable British fashion of his. Think, man, think. Sit down and have a jolly good think. And he put two major issues before their mind. We saw last week, first of all, that he gave to them their own personal experience. And he told them, you actually experienced God when you embraced Jesus by faith. The Holy Spirit ministered the life of God to you so powerfully and so dynamically that it was as if you could literally see Jesus crucified. They experienced the miraculous blessings of the new covenant. They knew they were forgiven. Isn't that glorious to put your head on the pillow at night with no guilt and no shame? I trust you know the guilt and shame will keep you awake at night. And they had peace with God. They weren't afraid of God anymore. They experienced mercy and, and love and freedom. God not only lived in them, he lived through them. They not only experienced God individually, they expressed him relationally so powerfully that other people could look at them and say, I see God in you. I th I'm thinking back to when I was in college and, and I, I was a, a burrito boy. I made burritos on campus as part of my campus job. And I was in adaptive and therapeutic rehab. That was my degree. So I was learning sign language. And there was this girl came up and somebody tried to help her and they couldn't help her because she was deaf. And so they turned to me because they knew my degree and I said, can you help? And so I went over to her and you know, I signed out, I can't remember it today, but I signed out, are you a Christian? And she lit up and she said, yes, how did you know? And I told her, I could see it in your face. That's what the new covenant intends for all of us to be like. And, and it's what happened to the Galatians. People could see God in them. And so Paul backed them into the corner with this very pointed question. Did you receive this dynamic new life from God because you achieved it by keeping the law? Or did you receive it from God as a gift by faith? And if you received it as a gift from faith, what are you doing going back to the law to think that the law is going to perfect you in this life? And then once he backed him into a corner, he sought to keep him there. And he pointed out to them that their experience was biblical. He quoted six scriptures to confirm that the law itself had proclaimed clearly that men are, are not made righteous before God by works, but only by faith. The law never gave life to anyone because the law can't give life to any man because no man can keep the law. And so now we're in chapter three, verses 15 to 29. I bathe myself in this, and I got to tell you what Paul does here in this next section is nothing short of masterful. He anticipates what these religious little critters are going to say next. And he answers their question before they even have an opportunity 
to ask it. You can hear them, can't you? I hear them. Well, of course Abraham was saved by faith. God hadn't given the law yet. I mean, faith then was just a, a temporary means of salvation until God gave the law, which is a more complete and perfect revelation. I mean, Paul, just look at how, how the law was given on Mount Sinai. There was lightning and thunder and awe and splendor. God was calling attention to what he was now doing in a major way. I mean, Paul, you sat under the feet of Gamaliel, greatest teacher in the world. Surely you remember that when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining like the sun. Did that happen to Abraham when he received righteousness by faith? I mean, if salvation by faith was intended to be permanent, then why did God give the law? You know, you look at that and it's a pretty appealing argument on the surface especially for people who seek experience. I mean, having a man's face shine like the sun, that's pretty impressive. I mean, Janet sees my glory as I walk around the house. But... <laughs> and so Paul in this next section is going to discredit their argument in no uncertain terms. He's going to make four dynamic declarations to affirm the supremacy of faith over and against the law. He's going to show them the superiority of the promise, the inferiority of the law, the real purpose of the law, and the great privilege of being a child of God. And dear ones, when people first look at this passage, it seems very daunting. When I looked at it, I was like, uh-oh. I mean, it's very wordy. And Paul is using a concept called logic. Uh-oh, shut the brain off. <laughs> no, 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 please don't do that. I want to affirm to you that this is not going to be difficult at all. This is nothing new for us at Grace Life Fellowship. It is the age-old contrast between the religion of human achievement and the religion, if you will, of divine accomplishment. It's the, it's the contrast of the glory of grace, which says done, and the demand of the law, which says go do. The bottom line is this. Is righteousness and life going to be provided by God, or is it going to be achieved by man? That's the issue. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will show you how simple this really is. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through this passage, in the surface, we're certainly going to see what Peter said. Peter said, you know, that guy, Paul, he's really hard to understand sometimes. But we have a great, great privilege. We know from 1 Corinthians 2 that you put your Holy Spirit within us to be our very own teacher of the things of God. And that's really wonderful news. It lets me off the hook because I'm not responsible to be able to teach anyone this. And it's all, it lets all the people of God here today off the hook because they're not responsible with their resources to get it. But your Holy Spirit will open our minds 
And through that, we can see like we've never seen before. And once having seen the freedom that is ours, we'll never go back to the law. That's what we anticipate is going to happen today by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Let's say it. All right, let's look at the superiority of the promise, verses 15 through 18. Look specifically at verse 15. And Paul is going to use very human language here. He begins by explaining how a contract works among humanity. And you all know this. When people make a covenant or make a contract, it's a binding agreement legally. Once it has been ratified, neither party can set it aside. No one else can come along and alter it, add to it, or change it because they weren't part of the original agreement. The only way for the contract or covenant to be changed is if both parties who made the initial covenant agree to change it. Pretty clear. Paul is making this point. If that's how a contract or covenant works between men, that it can't be nullified, how much more so is that true of a covenant made with God? that it can't be altered or changed. Especially since when God made his covenant of grace with Abraham, according to verse 16, Abraham was not even included in the making of that covenant. God made a covenant on behalf of Abraham that did not include Abraham. You say, Frank, what do you mean? God made the covenant between himself, the father, and his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to fully understand that issue, we've got to go back to Genesis, to chapter 15 and to chapter 17. We don't have the time to literally all turn there today, so I'm just going to walk you through it. You can be a Berean, go home and search those chapters and see if what we presented today is true or not. When you go back to Genesis 15 and 17, where the covenant was promised, note the language God does not say, Abraham, this is the covenant that we will make. It's not what he says. He says to Abraham, this is the covenant that I am going to make. Abraham was left out of it. You remember the story, I trust. God took Abraham outside at night and showed him the stars. And he said, your descendants are going to be like the numbers of the stars. And I'm going to give you a nation, a land for your people to live in. Abraham at that point believed God. Pretty big promise to believe. And God instantly counted him. And the word literally means imputed him, i.e. made him righteous because of his faith. So Abraham was made righteous by faith apart from the law because God said so. And if God says so, that's how it is. Now, Abraham at that point asked a question. And it's understandable for a human being to have that big a promise made to him, to say, oh my gosh, God, that's a, that's a huge deal. How, how, how am I going to know that you're going to do that? And so God humbles himself to Abraham and says, go get some animals. We're going to make a contract. You say, what do you mean? Well, in the ancient world, when two people decided to make a contract, they would get an animal or a group of animals and they would cut them in half and separate them. In other words, there was a lot of blood. And then each party would recite the covenant and then walk through those animals in symbolism. Saying what? If I break this covenant or if you break this covenant, let this blood happen to you and to me. In other words, 
People's word meant something in those days. It was pretty serious stuff. But when you read the passage in Genesis 15, we have a problem. And it's a glorious problem. It tells us that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. And Abraham never walked through the animals. Only God passed through. It says he passed through as a smoking oven and a flaming torch. That's going to be significant in just a minute. And so I have to ask you right now, did you see it? Though the covenant benefited Abraham, the covenant was not made with Abraham. God made a covenant with himself to bless Abraham. And anyone who would like him put their faith in God. Now pause for a minute. You can't run fast with that thought. Did you hear it? It's not on you to make this happen. Look at Galatians 3.16. Pay attention to the language. Paul is making reference to that covenant that was made in Genesis, the promises to Abraham. And look at what he says, and his seed, singular. Paul even emphasizes this, calling attention to the fact that it was not seeds, plural, but seed, singular. Hmm. Are your wheels turning yet? Is it coming to your mind an earlier passage, say Genesis 3.15? When God cursed the serpent and he said that he would put enmity between the serpent's seed and the seed, singular, of the woman. And what would the seed, singular, of the woman do? He would crush the serpent's head and bring redemption to man. So who was the seed? It's Jesus. And Paul spells that out in Galatians 3.16. He says it point blank, that seed was Christ. Now stay with me because this is huge. What did Eve have to do in order for that seed to do what it was going to do? Nothing. Do you realize salvation by grace through faith is not something that began in the New Testament. Salvation by grace through faith has always been the means of salvation. It is not what man achieves for himself. And you know why we need to know that? Because we can never achieve enough. No matter how much good we do, there's always that negative that's going to haunt us. It's not what man achieves for himself, but what God accomplishes on our behalf. And so I believe, my friends, that the smoking oven and the flaming torch were the father and the son. 
And they were making this covenant between themselves to bless all those who would exercise faith in that promised seed and he would then make them righteous by grace independent of the law. In other words, I'll say it to you this way. All the promised blessings of God are wrapped up in Jesus, not your behavior. Do you realize how cool that is? You and I have got only one responsibility before God. Put a circle right here. That's Jesus Christ. The text says in him are all the blessings of God. All you have to do is get into that circle. And all the blessings are yours. Could God have made it any more simple? And simple minds need it that simple. That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all of God's promises have their yes in him. The promise of life and the promised seed laid hold of by faith. That's why the promise is superior to the law. Look at Galatians 3.17. The covenant contract promise was confirmed before of God in Christ. The law came 430 years later and therefore it cannot nullify the earlier promise. Listen, Moses cannot nullify the promise God made because Moses is a third party. Moses cannot nullify the promise that God made because Moses didn't come along until 430 years later. And that covenant earlier still exists. And my friends, God will not nullify the promise because he can't break his promise. And before we move on, I want to share something with you that I've never seen before. I've been doing what I do for almost 40 years now, and this was huge for me this week. I trust it will be huge for you as well. In my writing, I came across this guy. He's a very brilliant man. And he said this, quote, this is one of the most difficult passages ever wrote, Paul ever wrote. There are almost 300 different interpretations of it. With all the humility I can muster, I don't believe that at all. And with all the humble boldness I can offer, I declare that 299 of those interpretations are dead wrong. Paul says the law came 430 years after the promise. But when you do the math, the law came 645 years after the promise made to Abraham. So that's where the problem comes in. If God gave the promise to Abraham and it was 645 years, why does Paul say 430? And they got 299, 300 different interpretations. They're all trying to explain where Paul got his number. There's no reason to do that. Look at verse 17. And I want you to answer me a question. Do you see Abraham's name anywhere in verse 17? It's not there. He doesn't say from the time of the covenant he met God made with Abraham. He doesn't say that. He just says from the time of the giving of the covenant. So I suggest to you that Paul is not counting forward from Abraham. You say, then what was his starting point? You were going to ask that, right? Well, my friends, if you do something, if you go to Genesis chapter 28, you will find that God affirmed the promise that he made with Abraham to a guy named Jacob. And if you count forward from the giving of that covenant to Jacob to the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, it's going to turn out to be 430 years. 
Did you see it? Did you gloriously see it? I never saw it till this week. I'm going to help you see it now. You know, as I meditated on this, it's so easy for us to see how God would promise blessings to Abraham. Of course you want to bless Abraham. He's the father of faith. He leaves his home and goes to a land that he doesn't know where he's going. Which one of us would do that today? Well, Janet and I did it when we came to Louisiana, but... (laughs) Okay, God, if that's what you say. He trusted God for his son when when he was 100 years old. I mean, worse, Sarah's 90. (laughs) Then he took that promised boy up on an altar to put a dagger into him. Just because God said so. And you read the text. He doesn't argue with God at all. He just says, yes, sir. So, of course, God's going to save Abraham by faith and make a covenant. He's He's a great man of faith. It's easy to see why God would bless him. But Jacob? Jacob was a scoundrel. Jacob had little faith. Jacob was a coward. Jacob was a user and a manipulator. Jacob was a deceiver and a liar. But God, don't you love that? God made the same promise to Abraham that he made to Jacob. Isn't that cool? When God said he would bless all people who exercise faith, he included scoundrels in that equation. And all the scoundrels said, oh, you're not thinking you are no longer a scoundrel in Christ. (laughs) You see how easy it is for us to mess this up? Listen, please listen. What this tells us is that no single person on this planet is ever too sinful to be beyond the scope of the grace of God. Anyone, no matter how bad they've been, can place their faith in the promised Redeemer who shed his blood for the forgiveness of their sins so that they could be made righteous before God permanently and then have the righteous one of the universe come and live inside of them so that they could experience God and then express God to the world around them. I have to wonder, why did Paul do that? I got to wonder if it's because he could relate so well to Jacob. You know, in the New Testament, Paul said he was the chief of sinners. He said he was a blasphemer, that he persecuted the church, but he he was a violent aggressor. But he was shown mercy. He was made righteous by faith. And he wanted all the Jacobs to know. It's just like he himself. You're not beyond the scope of the grace of God. No matter what you've done. If you're here today and you have kept yourself from God because of what you've done, in the name of Jesus, stop it. Put an end to your pride that has its focus on you and open up your arms and receive his shed blood on your behalf and enter into the family of God and do it right now where you sit by faith.
Paul summed it up in verse 18. If it was achieved by the law, gang, it wouldn't be a promise. Wouldn't be a covenant. So the promise is superior to the law, verses 15 through 18. And having established that, spent most of our time on it, we get to move quickly through the rest of the chapter. Secondly, he says the law is inferior to the promise. Paul is anticipating what the religionists are going to say next. Well, Paul, if salvation by grace, apart from the law, is the way it is, then why did God give the law? Answer that, Paul. Paul says, okay. He's going to give us three reasons why the law is inferior. Verse 19, look at the language. First, it was inferior in that it was added because of transgressions. Key word, added because of transgressions. This is a very, very important. The law was not added to keep men from sinning. It was added because they were already sinning. The law functions like a magnifying glass. It was given to magnify our sin. It was given to heighten our awareness of sin and guilt. The apostle Paul said it himself in Romans chapter seven. Do you remember? He said, I wouldn't have known what coveting was, but the law said, do not covet. And baby, I know what coveting is now. That's what the law does. It shows us how bad we really are apart from Christ. That's why the law is inferior to the promise of salvation. All the law can do is show man his sin, but it doesn't remove his sin. We said this many times. It's just like a mirror that you look at in the morning. It shows all the defects that you better fix before you go outside. But you don't take that law and rub it all over your face. The mirror can't remove the sin. It only shows you the sin. It's inferior. The law is inferior, secondly, because it was temporary. The law was added, look at verse 19, until the promised seed should come. Once you come to Jesus, you no longer leave the law. Paul's going to explain that much more fully in a few minutes. Thirdly, the law was inferior, he says in verse 19, because it was given by a mediator. This is huge. There were, in fact, two mediators. The law was given by angels, confirmed in Acts 7 and Hebrews 2, and the law was given through Moses. Mediators. Somebody in between us and our God. But when God gave the promise, how did he do it? Was there a mediator? God did it face to face. This is huge. There's a beautiful message here, my friends. And I would suggest to you that what God is doing is he's teaching through drama, visually. How many of you know that most of us learn visually? That's why Jesus said, look at the fig tree. See this mustard seed? Look at this little kid. We learn visually. So God gave us a visual. Run with me. Do you remember what we said earlier about the giving of the law? Exodus 20. It was awesome. And I don't mean, wow, awesome. I mean, awesome. Foreboding. Scary. It instilled fear and trembling among the people of God. There was lightning and thunder and dark clouds. And God even warned them, don't come near to this mountain. The law is holy, perfect, and good, and it's a terror. Do you really want the law? Contrast the giving of the law with the giving of the promise. When God gave the promise, he sat down with Abraham face to face. And there was no mediator. Wake up, church. Wake up. In the new covenant economy, we do not need a mediator between us and our God. 
You don't have to go to some man to get to God. You don't have to pray to some dead man to get to God. In the new covenant, we have a relationship with God that's face to face. There's no protocol. There's no ritual. There's no formality. Dare we say it? It's friend to friend. That almost sounds blasphemous. The living God of the universe is Frank Friedman's friend. And what's even more mind-boggling than that is that Frank Friedman is a friend of God. He claims me. Don't laugh at that. He claims you, and that's even worse. God confirms this in Isaiah 41. He says, Abraham's my friend. And anybody who puts their faith in Jesus is automatically the friend of God. And there is no intimacy like that in the law. You can't get it from the law. And so Paul anticipates what the religionists might say next. Look at it in verse 21. Oh, so you're saying, Paul, that the law is against the promises of God? What's, God? What's Paul say? He's God forbid. God gave the promise. God gave the law. God does not work against himself. They are not contrary. They are actually complementary. What do you mean? Verse 21, if the law could give life, then righteousness would have been by the law, but no such law is available. Why? Because Father's word, look at verse 21, has concluded. Circle that word. It means verified. What does Father's word verify? That all people, who's that include? All of us. We are all shut up under sin. Circle that word, shut up. It means locked up securely with no way of escape. So you know what he's doing metaphorically here? He's saying the law is like a spiritual prison. The law has no flexibility, no extenuating circumstances, no tolerance, no mercy. The law does not come to you and say, well, you blew it, but I understand you were tired. The law doesn't do that. The law goes, you blew it! And you're guilty. We're locked up with no way of escape. The law will never bring life to mankind. Never. End of discussion. But not end of the story. Did you hear that? End of discussion, but not the end of the story. From this point forward... It's as if Paul says, all right, you religious people, no more questions. I have answered your questions. Now it's time for you to listen. Because I'm going to preach, baby. I'm going to tell you about the real purpose of the law, verses 22 through 25. Look at verse 22. The law has locked us up so that, purpose clause, by faith in Christ, we could receive the promise. He says it again to make sure we get it. Verse 23, before faith, we were locked up under the law. Every single human being on the face of the planet is on a spiritual death row. What do you do when you're on death row? You hope that someone will look upon you with mercy who has the power to pardon you. Therefore, that means surely you now see what the real issue is, why God gave the law, verse 24. It was our schoolmaster. Circle that word, please. That's a very poor translation. We do not want to confuse 
a schoolmaster here with a teacher. It's worse than that. Circle that word in the margin of your Bible. It is the word pedagogos, and this is what it literally means. This is important. It means to lead the feet. To lead the feet. In other words, the pedagogos was a guardian. The pedagogos was a disciplinarian. I would liken it to the vice principal in junior high where I spent a lot of time. It was this servant whose sole job was to make sure that the child got to where they were supposed to go. So he says the law was given by God to serve us, to lead us, to make sure that we got to where we were supposed to go. And where were we supposed to go? There's only one place you can go. You want to pardon? Do you want to be pardoned? Do you want to be declared innocent? Do you want to be released from the prison of guilt and shame? Then let the law do what it's supposed to do and let it lead you to Jesus so that you can be made righteous by faith. In the ancient world, my friends, when the child became an adult, they were no longer under the authority of the pedagogos. That relationship was ended forever. They were free. So it is in the spiritual world. Verse 25, after we have come to faith, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. We're no longer under the law. The law accomplished its purpose. It led us to Jesus. There's no need for the law anymore. That relationship has ended forever. We are free from the law. We have Jesus. And more importantly, Jesus has us. It's over. It's actually over. And so we now, there's only one thing for him to do, and that's to take us to the privilege of being called a child of God. Verse 26, look at the first word. It's a glorious word, for. We could translate it because. Because you have come to Jesus by faith, you are all the children of God. All who have faith, that is. John 1, 11 and 12, to those who receive him, to them he gave the right to be called a child of God. Got to address two issues here. You are only a child of God if you've come to faith in Jesus. There is no such thing as the universal fatherhood of God for mankind. That is a damnable heresy that will keep men from Jesus. The world can say, oh, we're all the children of God. It's biblically untrue. Their children of God are only those people who put their faith in God. Those who do not put their faith in God in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 declares it very clearly. You are by nature a child of wrath. And according to John chapter 8, your father is the devil. And I hate, I hate those words. I can't tell you how I hate them. Because it means that, that, that my neighbor, it means some of my family members, it means some of my dear friends. They're still locked in the prison and they're living with guilt and shame. And one day they're going to stand before God and have to try to answer why they didn't receive Jesus and become his child. And most of them are going to answer. They can't plead ignorance. They're going to plead. It was their pride. They'd rather do what they want to do rather than yield to a God who has the best for them. The second thing I want to emphasize is the word all. If you have faith, you are all the children of God. And the point here is that there are no exceptions when it comes to faith. It's the same way for all of us. Verse 27, when anyone puts their faith in Jesus, they are baptized. Unfortunate transliteration. Instead of translating the word, they transliterated it. They put the Greek text baptizo into the text. And it causes confusion because now everybody thinks of water. It's not what he's talking about. 
Translate it. The word baptizo means to be immersed into or identified with. And so the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we were completely identified with Jesus. Literally, we have put on Jesus. That's what the text says. In the ancient world, there was a ceremony called the toga virilis. That was when a boy was recognized as an adult. And they would gather together family and friends and say, okay, little man, you're not a little man anymore. We're going to take off that child clothes and we're going to put upon you the toga virilis, which signifies that you are now an adult. You are a Roman citizen and you have all the rights and privileges of adult citizenship. And do you see what God is doing? When we put our faith in Christ, we put on Christ. He is our toga virilis. God is saying to us, you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God with all of its rights and privileges. And it's true for every one of us. Listen. Look at verse 28. Listen, please. All of the distinctions that separated us in terms of our value, worth, and significance, and all of the various identities that we were milking out of those distinctions are gone in Christ. He uses the language. There's no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, free nor slave. People do that. I'm a Jew. Well, la dee da I'm a Gentile. I'm a man. You're just a woman. In our modern culture, I'm the woman and you're just a man. (laughs) Stop that crap. Your identity is not based on your gender. Your identity is not based on your behavior. Your identity is not based on your profession. Your identity is not based on your financial worth. Your identity is based in Jesus Christ. And it's the same for all of us. We're all on the same level playing field, which means honesty and courtesy and dignity should be extended to anyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. My goodness. And Paul is saying here when somebody goes, I'm a Jew. Oh, no, you're not. You're a child of God who happens to be a Jew. You're a child of God who happens to be rich. You're a child of God who happens to be poor. You're a child of God who happens to be a janitor. That's not what identifies it anymore. It's that you are a child of God. And by the way, look at verse 29. What a summation. Do you realize because you're a child now? You have an inheritance. (laughs) You know, when I die, y'all are not getting any of my money. (laughs) It's going to my kids. And it's the same way it is for you. And that's what our Heavenly Father says. You know who gets my inheritance? My kids. And I'm one of them. Are you? Yes. And you know what's so cool about that? This this just blows my mind. I can't wrap my mind around it. I really can't. Our inheritance is God 
himself. So many little Christianettes, dear little stinkers. I'm getting a mansion. I'm going to walk the streets of gold. Do you realize that gold is pavement in the kingdom? You're getting God in all his fullness. Psalm 16, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. John Stott said it so simply. I wish that somehow we could grab the church and just shake it and get this into the hearts and minds of every believer on the face of this planet. This is what he said. We must let Moses send us to Jesus. We must let Moses send us to Jesus. I'll do it in the form of a question. Do you want to be a disciple of Moses? Or do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Do you want the law? Or do you want grace, truth, and life? Yeah, hallelujah. I heard it from one person. What's wrong with the rest of you? Let's all say it. Pastor Frank continues his series on Galatians this coming Sunday at Grace Life Fellowship. That message will be shared in a new episode on Tuesday. But be sure to join us Friday for Conversations in Grace. Jesse and Tim are going to be talking about the new heart. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. You don't want to miss it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to support our efforts at gracelifefellowship.org give. Thanks for listening. We'll see you Friday.